Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today, we have an awesome topic. The topic is understanding the rise and fall of truck load rates with Chris Pickett. How's it going, Chris? Uh, Excellent. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. Yes, I just met Chris, actually. Very good guy. He's got an interesting background. He's a He's one of those guys who's been there, done that, been in a lot of the top companies, and he's got his own company now, and I'm very excited to learn about why truckload rates do what they do. So, Chris, before we go any further, please introduce yourself and your company. Uh, Sure. So, I'm Chris Pickett, market analyst with uh, with Pickett Research, LLC. We just started up in January, and really the void we're looking to fill is out there in the industry. I think there seems to be a consistent general kind of lack of market guidance, market intelligence that is both directionally accurate, but also perceived as as objective. Again, there aren't any hidden agendas or perceived kind of conflicts of interest. And the information is out there in a way that one is actionable, digestible, but you can also trust it. Right. And Chris, I, when we were prepping for this, I said it and I've lived it. I think a lot of people listening have lived it. It wasn't so long ago that everything just felt very anecdotal. When somebody says, I, yeah, rates are going up. It was because somebody called and said, that truck now costs more. And maybe you heard it twice and all of a sudden rates are going up. And who knows, maybe that one lane was going up, but it all felt kind of just like, are you sure rates are going up? Because, and now we're starting to kind of grow up and have really good rates. And even like the magazines that you would read, something like rates might edge up over the next six months. Not particularly actionable, right? It was always felt like, and then you look and go, is this magazine's a month old? And probably the conversation with that analyst was a month old. <laughs> so how good is this? I think there's a reason for that. I mean, I think if you look at the path of truckload rates, whether it's spot or contrast and just you know, plot line haul rates over a 10-year period, a 15-year period, a 20-year period, generally over time, they do go up. You know, like a lot of other commodity categories, there is an inflationary bias where over time, right, they step higher. But what I've observed over the years is as you fall along that path, there's a tremendous amount of overshoot and collapse and cyclical volatility around that line. And where maybe every three years, you can reasonably expect rates to decline. And I think for the, certainly the, the 14 or 15 years I was out Coyote, I don't think I ever heard another media outlet, certainly another, another carrier, you know, the broker ever put out guidance that implied that rates were likely to go down in any way because the safe bet, the, the safe bet was rates are going up, right? So let's set our budget based on rates are going up. And if they don't, then, Hey, great. And you know, let's set our, our growth targets as, as an asset-based carrier or broker, just assuming that our rates are going up and that's a safer way to go about your planning and going about your business. But it's not always the case. So if you can identify those periods of time where rates aren't going to go up um, or do a better job of understanding how high are they going to go up and you can actually make decisions to position your organization accordingly, I think that creates advantage. Right. So, Chris, you've got a really cool background. Tell us where you grew up, where you went to school. And I know you went to school virtually at every good school. <laughs> and, and then tell us, give us some career highlights. Definitely overeducated, I guess. So I grew up as an engineer. So I grew up on the East Coast, right outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, studied industrial engineering at Virginia Tech. I think I initially came into tech wanting to go into 
either mechanical or potentially aerospace, but I think kind of you know, fell in love with the commercial, the economics, the, the business side of, of the world as well. You know, took a bunch of business classes and found that industrial engineering was kind of the, the best of both worlds in terms of combining the mechanical aspects of systems, but also the behavioral aspects of human beings, right, that have to come together and, and work to commercialize a lot of these systems. So I uh, graduated in 98, like a lot of folks, I would assume, had no idea what I wanted to do next. Yeah, I'd done a co-op, I'd worked in a manufacturing environment, didn't really love that, but kind of got super intrigued with what happened after the trucks left the plant in terms of how you got that product that took a nickel to manufacture in, let's say, you know, Richmond, Virginia, and how it made its way to Helsinki or Tokyo or up the street to Washington, D.C. to retail for, for something much higher. And how did that logistics function work? At the time, you also had you know, kind of the internet that was coming to bear, which seems like a really hokey thing to say now, but this is you know, late 90s. I know. I always feel funny saying anything about pre-internet because I always feel like at some point people are going to look at you like you got two heads. Well, I know my kids do. <laughs> I know they always say, how did you even do homework? I was like, we had books. We had books. <laughs> so I think so. I think coming out of the experience, I knew I wanted to bias towards technology in some way. I knew I had a passion for the logistics aspect, transportation aspect, distribution aspect of, of supply chain. But in terms of what that meant, who knows? So like a lot of folks kind of wandered around the career fairs and ended up meeting uh, Anderson Consulting, which is now Accenture. It's a large technology consulting firm that was on campus trying to find engineers to go out and build software for enterprise customers. And by sheer happenstance, for the most part, ended up in their San Francisco office. So having no idea what was ahead of me from a dot-com boom standpoint, <clears throat> everything has changed. I had two fraternity brothers who also got jobs in the Bay Area, figured let's load our crappy college furniture in the back of U-Haul and head west to seek our fortune, which was kind of our mindset. And, and that's what we did. And so landed in San Francisco in the summer of 98 with an engineering undergrad working for a technology consulting firm in the midst of the internet revolution, turned out wasn't a bad place to, to find no, yourself. No, not too shabby. I remember the rates at Anderson Consulting were absolutely ridiculous on the internet side. I remember working with those guys and I remember somebody showing me the rates. I was like, oh my God. And it's funny because they'd say two years experience in internet. And I was like, well, that's two years more than the rest of us. <laughs> that's why I think it's 700 bucks an hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But so, I mean, at the time, everyone was jockeying to get staffed on the sexy e-commerce projects. They wanted to get on the eBay project and, and, and Amazon and everything else and Yahoo. I got kind of staffed on the other side of the world in the unsexy corner of old school telecom. All right. So most of my work was with telecom companies building mainframe software to manage billing. So we were basically our product was a phone bill, which is kind of the opposite of sexy e-commerce. <laughs> but I, mean, I became a database developer working with a team that was Cody and Cobol. And so but what I did learn is just the interesting applications of technology of any kind, you know, realize whether it's old school, new school to unsexy corners of the universe to drive incredible value, which would, of course, come up later with, with trucking. So I did that for about a year and a half, two years, ended up going over to startup, which you kind of had to do at that point with some folks that I'd worked with at Anderson. We're not raised a bunch of money from SoftBank. It's funny how some things change, some things never change. To basically build an e-commerce distribution platform for all these aspiring B2C merchants right, that were flocking online because suddenly e-commerce is here and you no longer need massive CapEx and a brick and mortar footprint to reach an audience. You need a good idea, good products, and merchandising skills. And, so you and guys beat Shopify to market, huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. If only the outcome was nearly as compelling as what those guys are doing. <laughs> like I think we were kind of the, yeah, the Amazon before there was an Amazon, but it turns out nice. uh, know, we were about 20 years too early. It worked well for a while, and there were some really interesting network effects that scaled where 
you know, the, the idea was you go to any website, you hit submit order, whatever the product was. If we were supporting that backbone, we would pull the order, figure out which fulfillment center it was supposed to route to. And that decision might be driven by all kinds of different factors, but track it, manage the fulfillment, right? Send you the consult, the customer, all the annoying emails around your orders been picked, packed, ship, do all the tracking, coordinate with the small parcel shipper, uh, carrier company, manage the credit card pre and settlement, and also do third party customer support. So it's effectively distribution in a box. So you want to sell something cool, get your website up, build up your front end, and we would effectively handle the rest. But on the back end, there's only so many fulfillment centers you need, right, to reach majority of the country. And so as we built out the network, the incremental cost of adding new merchants, you would drop asymptotically low. At least that's what the model showed. And so as you as you spun that flywheel, right, then the system effects and the efficiencies started to take hold, it was a super compelling idea. And, and it worked for a while until suddenly the music stopped and the market imploded. And it turned out that you know consumers didn't need 15 different you know, petfood.coms. Right. I remember though there were so many for younger people here, this was like the first internet bust. And there was like, yeah, there was like pets.com and all these companies that for the most part all went away. And I think probably Amazon was on that list and eBay was on that list and they survived, but there wasn't a whole lot of others that made that. Out of that first wave. But I think what it did was completely change my perspective on, on what a career could be and how business worked. And one, it was, holy cow, there's a lot of interesting things happening at this intersection of technology and supply chain that I certainly didn't understand before I landed in the Bay Area, but I, I certainly got an inkling of. So what was next? What did you do after that big bust? <laughs> so after that, it also kind of ruined my appetite to some degree for kind of Fortune 500, you know, going back to the phone company or the consulting firm or, or the manufacturing plant. Once you go through that experience, like, holy cow, let's do that again. And so figuring no one was going to give me another $84 million, all of 24 years old, to, to start an e-commerce business in, in 2001. Decided the next best thing was to go get educated, go back to grad school, try to sharpen the saw, run into some other like-minded entrepreneurs and and try to put myself in a position to do something like that later in my career. So I landed at MIT, I uh, went to Cambridge, found myself in the midst of a, a, a super interesting cohort of folks, one of them being Jeff Silver, who's the primary founder at Coyote for sure. And now is doing really interesting things at Mastery, a guy named Bill Driegert, who was an early Coyote guy who now has a, a leadership role at Uber Freight and a lot of other great folks. And I kind of think about it as you know, Disneyland for supply chain geeks, where you're super hard, but you're super interesting. This is why you go to MIT and Harvard, guys, so you, who you bump into. <laughs> and so, yeah, great experience. Picked up on all kind of the interesting, nerdy, you know, MIT supply chain pixie dust around things like predictive modeling and queuing theory and network optimization and, and how you can use right math and science and logic to run trucking networks more efficiently. And so coming out of that experience, we kept in touch. You know, there wasn't really anything interesting happening out in the market from an early stage supply chain startup standpoint. At that time, it kind of turns out there really is. So I'm assuming Jeff Silver had already been in business. He had American backhaulers and sold it and then went to MIT. Yeah. So we were kind of in the reverse direction. Typically, you go to grad school to try to get smart, find yourself in an early stage leader position and, and make a lot of money. You know, Jeff had already had a fantastic run with American backhaulers, proven entrepreneur, had his exit. Thought he was retiring, and then his idea of retirement is you know, <laughs> I think it's a kind of a testament to what makes a guy like that tick. And Jeff's a fascinating guy, for sure. So this was the beginning of Coyote. Of Coyote, kind of the first seeds being planted. So we kept in touch. Jeff still had a certain number of years on a non-compete that he was committed to after his last exit, which is still a couple of years in force. So he so sold American to- backhaulers to Robin, C.H. Robinson, and he couldn't start a new business. He couldn't start Coyote till that ended. Correct. In terms of what Coyote was eventually going to be. And so I decided to defer real life for two more years. This is 2003. Moved down to Atlanta today, a full MBA at Georgia Tech. It's about time you get educated. <laughs> 
I was trying to pick out all the, the tech schools on the eastern side of, of the United States. Very I, uh, good. Ran, ran out of time and money. So topped out at, at Georgia Tech. Finishing there, ironically, did my MBA internship at UPS, which would obviously come back into play many years later when they acquired Coyote. But fortunately, ran back into Jeff as the idea for Coyote was starting to take shape in terms of his head. And the idea of, you know, was going to be a software company versus, you know, a brokerage. And, you know, as that, you know, kind of vision solidified, we kept in touch. And eventually, it probably wasn't a very long conversation in terms of him convincing me to leave Atlanta and move up to the cold confines of Chicagoland in late fall of of 2006 to start a tech-based freight brokerage. Wow. So you must have had a wild ride there. How long were you at Coyote? Right about 15 years. Right, So I was at the fall of of 06, you know, all the way through our our meteoric growth, up to about a $2 billion run rate from a gross revenue standpoint in 2015 when UPS acquired us. Stayed on for the, you know, five late five years later, managed to double the business up again, right? So if they bought us in 15 for 2 billion, four years later, we were twice the size. Again, leveraging some of some of those you know, you know, cross-functional synergies and really looking to kind of to buck the cliche that, you know, fast growth, right? Technology, culture, you know, driven startup gets bought by much larger, you know, longer tenured firm and they choke all the all the innovation out of them. And I think we did that where the two businesses coexist. They still do right very well. And it's been a super healthy marriage, certainly more so than I think a lot of us even expected. And we were certainly optimistic at the time. So what did you do within Coyote? What was your bent? Was it more the tech side or the... A little bit of everything, most primarily on the shipper facing side of the business, right? So starting out in in shipper sales and how do we best uh, align what we can deliver as a business to the shipping needs of our customers on, on that side of the marketplace, Certainly, you know, part of, of our kind of our product development and kind of growth strategy is, you know, how does this machine run? How does our flywheel operate? What are the levers that drive this thing? And, and how do we exploit them, again, to our best benefit and the benefit of, of the customers, as well as the carriers that we service? And eventually, over time, that would include everything from inside sales, outside sales, you know, account operations, marketing, pricing strategy, which is going to play well into kind of where Pickett Research came from, data science, built kind of a managed TMS product. That's done really well. And spent some time in Europe as we've been expanding our, our kind of our global platform. But most of that kind of executive leadership responsibility focused on the, the shipper side of, of the marketplace. Nice. So you left and you decided I'm going to start a research firm. <laughs> I don't know if that was the plan when I decided that you know 2020 would be a good year to kind of pass the baton. And you know, honestly, there just wasn't much left for me to do in terms of what I'd set out to do. You know, strong leadership group. Everyone had kind of grown up and they're doing great things and Coyote is alive and well and its best days are ahead, right? No doubt. But in terms of the things I was excited about, thought now would be, and this is all kind of pre-COVID, best laid plans and all. Right. Uh, you know, 2020 would be a good year to kind of slowly kind of transition out and gracefully exit right stage left and figure out what the next adventure was going to be. And over that time, you know, landed with this idea of, you know, taking again some of this research methodology that I'd kind of come up with a Coyote to forecast freight rates and extending that research and publishing under an independent umbrella as opposed to out of Coyote Logistics. Right. And, you know, I'm not just saying this to be nice, but when I think about somebody trying to predict freight rates and, again, the the rise and fall of truckload rates, I want somebody who went to Virginia Tech and Georgia Tech and MIT to be behind it. Of course, I want that. But I also want somebody who is at one of the top brokers. I mean, one of the top three PLs. And so you really do have, I'm not just saying this to be nice, you have like the perfect background to do it because it's the theoretical, but also the practical that I lived it. <laughs> and you kind of have to. And I think that's the unique perspective I bring where it's, I was 
interested enough in the macroeconomics, the data behind it, and kind of tracking all these charts and graphs, but at the same time, also dealing with the day-to-day commercial implications of the, the decisions you make based on what's happening and then what that feels like, right? The, the pain and the anxiety and the fear and the euphoria you hear from folks in shipper procurement, folks on the, the asset side, your own employees that are out, again, making commitments and promises to either the cares that we work with our customers in light of this data. And then, and then what happened? And then what does that feel like? And how do you translate that emotion, right, to what you're seeing on a chart to infer, okay, then what comes next? Yeah, this is an important part of this industry growing up, I feel like, having the actual data on where rates are going. And the reason I say that is because having worked at a 3PL, and also it's some large shippers and advising shippers and 3PLs over time, everything always felt somewhat anecdotal. Just like, oh, well, two of the carriers called today and they want to raise rates. Oh, rates are going up. That's two carriers, maybe two lanes, but all of a sudden rates are going up. And then the conversation starts blasting through through the building. Rates are going up. Who knows if they're going up? Maybe that maybe everyone doesn't want to work with us anymore. And it's no way to run a railroad. We have to do better than that. So what hole in the market or what opportunity did you see to start a research firm based so on I, freight rates? <laughs> I think I mean, ultimately where the research came from was really trying to figure out a better methodology that drove how we set contractual commitments, contractual truckload commitments. Okay, did you think about what truckload commitment is as, as a non-asset, as a broker? You're making a bet and you're making, it's a forecast, it's a guess, whatever you're going to call it, but you're making a bet that says, okay, if I th- want to make 200 bucks on this lane and I'm going to, I think it's going to cost me 800 bucks over the course of that term. And that term is, can be a bumpy one, right? And therefore I'm going to charge this shipper a thousand dollars. And that, whether that holds up in terms of, the rest of their procurement environment or not, you know, who knows, let's assume it does. Then it's all a matter of to what extent did that bet, that guess of $800 hold up over the cycle. And that number is going to shift as you go through the, the seasonal stuff that happens every year and the unplanned stuff like winter storms in Texas or polar vortexes elsewhere or, or hurricanes. And to what extent did your forecast hold up over that period that created a positive financial outcome? And that's one lane, right? For, for one shipper in one bid extrapolate that over thousands of shippers and thousands of bids, if we can't figure a way to get this right and operate with more confidence, life's going to be really tough, right? Because it's not just did the bid hold up, but it's also understanding what's happening to you over the course of that term and try to, as much helping you make better decisions, it's helping you make fewer bad decisions. Right, <laughs> right. You know exactly. what I mean? In terms of, of things are going sideways and I think they're always going to be this bad. Therefore, I'm going to have a negative contract discussion and go backwards on a commitment. And honestly, before Coyote, that's a lot of how the industry worked, right? Because no one figured they could actually predict this stuff, right? Shippers can't predict their freight volumes. Carriers can't predict their network capacity, you know, from day to day, week to week. So we'll put our best bet and we'll put out this contract. And you hear a lot of the narrative around contracts and truckload have quotation signs around them. And everyone will make their best effort to kind of hold to this. And if they don't, then we'll see how that influences relationships next year. So put together a framework that eventually, once you zoom out enough and you look at rates through a prism of not necessarily day to day, month to month, or even quarter over quarter, but if you look at year to year, the same rate data, average over quarter, and look at it year over year, which is really what I would look at as my breakthrough here in terms of how I think about this, there is a very consistent pattern of overshoot and collapse year over year by quarter, right? So, what, so do you mean, what do you mean by overshoot and collapse? It resembles something that looks like a sine curve, right? For anybody that remembers their, their high school geometry. Don't say right? that. So it's, it's, it's an S curve <laughs> where you basically go to this period of spot and contract rates escalate. Like we're in right now, right? Look around. This is what an inflationary market feels like. So I'm as a carrier, I say, I need new trucks. Well, you know, it depends, right? So rates go up. Rates you have a decision. 
the end, you say, oh, I've got certain capital available. I've got rates where they are and I've got investment opportunities and rates are going up. And therefore, as all human beings you know, that operate in marketplaces like this, right, we're all handicapped to some degree by psychological biases. In this case, something called recency bias, where we're always overweighting right, our most recent observations and experiences in terms of predicting the future. And what that means is rates are really high. My outlook for the economy is strong. We're coming out of a recession. So therefore, the rate should stay high. And therefore, I want to expand my exposure to this rate environment by adding to my fleet. Or maybe yeah, I, I've got people getting new trade. new people, uh, yeah, exactly. Building out you know, more facility, more infrastructure. Or maybe to say, look, we're realizing you know, excess, for lack of a better term, rates of return. Our, our opt income is high. We want to reinvest in our business, which makes but all the sense. That's the work. overshoot phase where I. That's the I, overshoot. So all, it's not just one guy doing it, it's a whole bunch of us all saying, things are good. I'm going to buy more trucks. I'm going to open a terminal. And then at a certain point, there's a lot of capacity, maybe more than necessary. And that's where the collapse begins, right? <laughs> the ironic thing about all of it, and each one of those individual decisions is probably entirely rational, right? So you want to reinvest in your fleet? Sure. There's, there's better fuel economy out there, right? There's, there's better safety features, uh, more automatic transmissions, make my power units more attractive to retain my... Those are all absolutely rational things to want to do. But in a market that's fragmented, when everyone's making these different decisions in their own silos, what happens is your old trucks eventually go out to the secondary market, and that creates avenue for smaller carriers typically to come in. So it doesn't really matter what any one supplier does. This is why we need Pickett's research. (laughs) So we can look and say, ooh, here's where the market's at. And I'm assuming behind your data, there's some some observations and some recommendations if required. Yeah, I mean, the, the easy part is looking back, right? I used to always tell Joe Jeff Silver as I was developing this methodology, hey, Jeff, I can forecast the last 10 years you know, with 100% <laughs> so certainty. Right. Like, get out of my office. What, what, what's going to happen next quarter, right? right? And so that's where kind of the art-ish kind of science of, okay, based on all, this, all these data points, and they're not always clear, they're rarely clear, based on historical cycle characteristics, what comes next? Right. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned we are overly biased as humans on what's right now, what's our recent past and what's our present. And what's interesting is we're kind of, I'd like to think the tail end of COVID. I think it's the one year anniversary as we speak. And it's interesting because even though we're getting vaccines, I saw a lot of articles that says, even if everyone's vaccinated, you still have to wear masks. And I was like, what? And I was thinking, this is human nature is to say, we're wearing masks. Even when we're vaccinated, we should still socially distance because that's what we've been doing for a year. That's our new normal. That's how we think. And I think, yeah, that's just human nature. We do this all the time. When things are bad, we think they'll always be bad. When things are good, we think they'll always be good. So let's switch gears here a little bit. So I know you work with carriers and you work with shippers because they need to know if those rates are going up or down. And you work with brokers and you work with investors, right? So give me just a thumbnail of each one. What's each one looking for? Just a bullet point or two. So I think for each one, the question is always, if you knew what the future held, and you know it was a kind of a loaded term, you had high conviction in the likely outcome. I know what Chris Pickett does, so I know him. (laughs) So yeah, if you had high conviction, right, that the market rate environment was likely to be higher or lower to what degree, and you look at spot rates versus contract rates, would you make different decisions as an organization? And I would argue most folks would if they believed it. And if they had an array of options that they could take action on that perform better in an inflationary versus a deflationary environment, for example. So if you're a shipper, right, and again, 
say a contract shipper that has enough volume, we're out you know, doing an annual bid or it, maybe it's quarterly or, or whatever it is, right? You're out contracting business and you've got different modes you can use. Sometimes you've got intermodal based on your supply chain footprints. Some moves LTL, some trying. There, there's some substitution opportunity there based on market economics. And you know, every year they're looking to set your carrier strategy for truckload, your mode strategy, your bid strategy. You're trying to set a budget that's going to hold up, right? So you can kind of keep your job right next year. If you have high conviction as to what that term is going to look like in terms of the market environment, right, you can be much more informed in terms of how you think about setting that strategy. You know, I'd argue most shippers, you should operate, you know, look at almost as a portfolio of, of investments. And every year that portfolio, certain portfolio allocation might make more sense in, high, in a high interest rate environment versus a low interest rate environment. And that may mean certain freight should allocate towards private fleet in one year and maybe less so in another year, dedicated asset in one year, less so in another year. You'll leave exposure to spot where you think there's going to be opportunity. So you're speaking to a shipper and saying, hey, look, over the next 18 months, over the next 12 to 18 months, this is what I think is going to happen. If you think the rates are going down, you can advise them, hey, this is this is the time when you want to not lock in too much because you might want to renegotiate, right? So yeah, so when you're at the top of a peak right now, now is not a great time to sign a three-year rate agreement (laughs) as an example. Right. And that's only one example. So that's for the shipper. Now, if you're a carrier... (laughs) <laughs> and you say, hey, what do I want? So I know that maybe the rates are going down over the next 12 to 18 months. What do I do? Yeah, I think you get that same portfolio analogy, right? So there's the rates move at different speeds, right? Spot moves much faster than contract, right? So if you're, say, a, a larger asset-based carrier that can dedicate part of your asset pool to dedicated contracts, where that's, you've got a fixed whatever daily rate that's going to hold it over the term of that contract, you have a certain tranche you can dedicate towards you know, enterprise shippers, some you might want to proactively expose to spot, maybe, maybe not, but ultimately you're going to look to try to allocate the trenches of your fleet right to the rate lines that are presumably going to behave more attractive over the term of the contract. So what that means right now is Lock in. Care, now's the best time to sign a three-year rate agreement. And if you can get a shipper that's willing to give you a three-year dedicated, now's probably a really good time to do that. So all the carriers are reaching out to their brokers and 3PLs and their shippers and say, hey, let's get lunch. Let's talk. We don't get together enough. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, at the other side of that spectrum, if you're, say, a smaller owner-operator where you, you don't have the fleet size to be able to hold contracts, period, just because it's a factor of being an owner-operator, then times are really good right now. Rates are high, but this is where you got to really be careful that recency bias where it might now might not be the best time to triple your fleet, to take on three more leases right for 2022 because you think it's always going to be this way. Or potentially, you try to forecast the potential cash flow hit. Let's say spot rates are, are lower 20% next year. We'll see. And that's where most of your freight comes from. How are you going to respond to a 20-year reduction in cash flow? So obviously carriers have to make decisions based on this, and so do shippers. And then brokers are obviously- Brokers are right in the middle of it. So so, so brokers have the most immediate financial impact because ultimately if you're a non-asset-based freight broker like a lot of them, and let's say your contract bias, if it's a small broker, you're just playing the spot market, none of this really matters. You're going to mark to market and and your rates will follow you, your costs. If you're taking on contract commitments, like what I described at Coyote- then you have massive exposure. And what happens, you know, right now, every broker out there is trying to minimize their exposure to contract, right? Because all their contract margins are getting right. squeezed. Right. So the costs are, are rising much faster than those contract rates. And you're seeing some brokers reneging off of commitments or forcing you know, reprices or... Speaking of which, that's an interesting point. I know there was a little bit of a brawl on LinkedIn a few months ago, and it's come up on this podcast. So some brokers and 3PLs will say, hey, look, we'll promise this rate. And even as rates skyrocketed past that, so they would lose money on some of the deals that they had committed to. And they, and some would say, I walked away from it. My first thought is I'd walk away. I'd, I'd call my carrier and say, 
I mean, I call my uh, customer and say, hey, here's what happened. I lost truckers. I know you're from Coyote, and I think that Coyote was in the mode of we made that promise and we will keep that promise. What's your thoughts on it? I know you have an opinion on it. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think if you commit to a contract, you should make sure you're prepared to honor that contract. And you should forecast out, right, the outcomes under which that contract is going to remain in place and do the work and ensure that the protections are there. It's a lot easier said than done, but that may come down to, you know, setting volume caps or kind of, you know, maxes in a contract where, hey, the lane's going to ship a thousand times. This rate is good up to two a day. Above that, it's going to be at a spot rate. Or you might try to force it to contract quarter. But the challenge is, if you're predicting this is kind of like the curse of foresight, you're making these commitments in a completely different cycle of the market. When rates are going up, you're in a down market usually. And that's when the contract environment tends to get the most desperate. And I don't propose that shippers latch onto this and, and try to drive it down. I think that's the market does it on its own. And as everyone's competing, it doesn't pay to be more bullish in terms of rates are going than anyone else, right? Because what that's going to mean is your rates are going to look unattractive. And you can try to explain this all day long. This is what we would try to do with the cycle methodology, try to explain the pricing. This is what's going to happen. This rate will hold up over the entire period. I know everyone else is saying the same thing, but you're going to find out you know, who is prepared to honor that commitment. I like what you said, which was, I'm going to make that promise, but I'm going to put some protections in place. And what I think the protections you guys did at Coyote, what you can do for your customers now is that protection is knowledge, right? It's knowledge. And then once you have that knowledge is to mitigate any potential Anything that's going to cut into your margin or cause you to lose money, you're going to say, I saw this coming. Here's the plan. But it's got to go both ways. There's got to be an appetite on the procurement side of the table where we want to put the best model in place that will allow the business to thrive, regardless of kind of what happens and that we've got the the flexibility from an operational standpoint to, to kind of course correct over time as to whether this reality unfolds as you've described it or not, and then what are we going to do about it? Right. Yeah, it's an interesting dilemma because I'm a big believer in partnerships. And so I don't want my partners to lose money. By the same token, I don't want my partner to be lackadaisical about committing to things either because commitments are commitments. And so I don't want to drive anyone out of business because they made a bad call. But it's kind of built into almost the, the fabric of which these agreements are set, where it's not like that freight commitment from the shipper is, is that reliable either, right? It's based on a sales forecast and who knows. And that's what kind of drives this back and forth around just the structure of what a contract is. It's a best guess from both sides. And and when reality actually happens, yeah, we'll see what, where that contract agreement you know kind of goes. It's a starting point. Then there might be some negotiation. So, so tell me, you work with investors also. What do investors want to know about this? Anyone who's making bets on segments of the industry, whether it's publicly traded truckload companies, but there's also right knock on impacts to yeah rails, IMCs, small parcel or LTL carriers. So if truckload, they need those trucks to move their stuff. So all of a sudden their businesses. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the largest segment of the marketplace. So when truckload changes, it's almost you look at relative value in ancillary markets, right? That has an impact. What's the largest and, part of the truckload market? And so let's say surface transportation, I don't know, $800 billion a year. In terms of, of US surface transportation, the size of the intermodal market or LTL versus, versus truckload or even small parcel compared to truckload, truckload tends to be the lion's share of of a lot of large enterprise shippers. So when that pool of your spend moves materially one way or another, right, the relative attractiveness of other substitute modes can have a various, very serious change you know, as well. So if you're an investor that's going to, you're making structured bets and you're trying to, you know, what's the earnings stream going to look like for this particular financial opportunity if truckload freight rates are a material input into, right, the call side of that, then 
the more accurately you can expect, you know, what that element of income statement is, is going to do over that period, right? The more likely you can be right when everyone else is wrong. And the way that these things work with recency bias, typically you're making those bets when everyone else is wrong, right? Because you know, we're at a deflationary trough, looking at an inflationary roller coaster up, or we're an inflationary peak and likely headed towards a deflationary trough. You get the test. How much conviction do you have in that forecast relative to the rest of the market? And how do you use that to drive your valuation metrics and models to structure your bets? And Chris, I think that what they need to do, they need to trust themselves. Oh, no, wait, never mind. Don't trust yourself. So, <laughs> Call Chris and get his research. Don't trust yourself. <laughs> and there are plenty of other outlets out there. But I think the challenge, you, you need to form your own opinion, I guess, is my point. And there's plenty of pundits. There, there's plenty of folks that are even more so covering this corner of the world today than, you know, than there ever were. You just need a way to evaluate all of those sources in terms of credibility, objectivity, relevance to your market and the problem you're trying to solve and whatever else you're looking at such that you form your own opinion, you're not getting swayed by the herd. But you said, I think it may be earlier or maybe when we were prepping that you'll seldom find brokers and carriers going to shippers saying, yeah, it looks like rates are coming down. <laughs> no, yeah, for the, at least the, for the first... First 14 years or whatever it was until, I don't know, it's probably the first 10 years until we actually started publishing in a kind of a public arena, you know, at a coyote. It's, I'd, I'd never heard anyone mention the idea of rates are going down. You just didn't hear it. And I think the first time we went out publicly, the coyote curve with the forecast, it was a year where you know, rates were headed lower. I always remember being on a project, um, one of my customers, and it was mostly less than truckload, but we had taken their price down significantly over time, like 20%. And they said, we've never had anybody do this for us before. And I kept saying, I would love to take all sorts of credit here, but the wind is at my back. <laughs> the, rates, the rates on less than truckload are lower right now. I think it was probably 2011, 2012. And I said, it's eventually the wind is going to be in my face. And I hope you recognize that. So I don't, I don't want to take full credit now. And I want the full beating later. <laughs> But just because you say you know, market rates, the environment's likely to be deflation, doesn't mean in your next bid, your rates are going down. You're not going to convince anybody of anything, especially in, in a financial decision-making, emotional environment to believe your forecast. And ultimately, you go to market, you're still in an inflationary peak. You know, just because you put out the picket market cycle curve in front of all your vendors and say, hey, this is what the market's going to do, price accordingly, you don't expect them to say, okay, cool, we, we believe that and we're going to discount our rates by 10%. That's not how it works. You're going to get the best combination of whatever your rates that get offered right from your vendor base. And then what you're trying to decide is how well that's going to stand up over time. And in a deflationary environment, that's going to stand up pretty well. I think what's interesting though is to your point, there is data out there now that we can start to look at and analyze and make some decisions going forward. Yeah, this is excellent, Chris. So today, again, the topic is understanding the rise and fall of truckload rates with Chris Pickett. And uh, Chris, why don't you summarize this for us and uh, put your final thoughts on the topic? So I guess my primary assertions are the U.S. truckload market, because of its inherent structure and as large and fragmented as it is with very low barriers to entry and exit, creates this cycle of overshoot and collapse that has historically, at least over the last 15 years, have been watching it run over a typically three-ish year period where you get two years inflationary, one year deflationary. And we oscillate or kind of cycle from these points of mass euphoria on the supply side, right? Where rates are high. Let's go buy more trucks. Where we all buy trucks, buy trucks. We're, we're there right now. And if you look at where class eight, in that class eight tractor order spike, it's, it's right now. If you look at the granting of cargo or kind of a operating authority, right? For carriers entering the market, you're, you're seeing spikes right now. And so when rates are high, new capacity comes in. 
net new capacity. It doesn't matter what any individual supplier does. Eventually, too much capacity comes in relative to demand, right? That puts a cap on inflation, collapses rates to a deflationary trough, and you get to a point where enough unprofitable supply exits relative to demand. And that happened in 2019. The market turns, and that sets up the next cycle, right? So I would argue there is a cycle in play. This is the shape of the cycle, the overshoot and collapse. Overshoot and collapse. And so you think right now we're in the mode of overshoot, and that is because... We're, we're overshooting right now. And that is because what factors you see? So say them one more time. I know you just said them. So it's probably you know, recency bias, overshooting, overextrapolating, which basically means you're taking all your current experiences, but holy cow, rates are high. My expectations for the economy for the next foreseeable future are positive. Therefore, it's time to load up, increase my exposure to this high rate environment if I'm on the supply side, which is entirely rational, as that replicates across the entire supply side, which is impossible to observe, which makes this so tough because of how fragmented the market is. Well, I mean, you say it's so so tough to observe, but you're talking about it. So there is now, there is data that we didn't have in the past. And so, so if somebody says, I imagine a lot of people are saying, before we buy 10 new trucks, let's look around. <laughs> There's got to be something to look at. And that's... You may still want to buy 10 more trucks, but make sure your rate expectations or, or the model you're using to predict the ROI stands up over the collapse. And, and it may still. That's, I'm not saying don't buy them more trucks. Just make sure that financial decision still makes sense if rates are 20% lower in 2022. I assert that there is a cycle and the cycle is structured by the behavioral psychology of the buyers and sellers that operate in a market that's defined by the fragmentation that exists in US truckload. So long as that structure remains intact, you don't see material consolidation from things like uh, regulatory changes or technology innovation, which those things are happening, but I don't see them materially driving consolidation in the foreseeable future. The cycle is doomed to repeat itself. And so if you're in a cycle, by definition, cycles continue. And if you can measure where you are in the cycle, and if you believe the cycle is going to continue, you should be able to build conviction as to what the future looks like as you cycle through that trajectory. If you can do that, logically, you should be able to make better decisions in the here and now, right? That position your organization, whether you're a carrier, a shipper, a broker, an investor, right? To hold up under, right? That inflationary deflation environment that's coming up, not tomorrow, not next month, not even next quarter, but next year or whatever the horizon is by which you're trying to plan over. Interesting, interesting stuff. And again, I think what's so fascinating about all this is there is now data that wasn't out there not so long ago. So, before we wrap this up, tell us what's going on over Chris Pickett Research. <laughs> well, it's just Pickett Research. Tell us what's going on. Who do you serve and how do they reach out to you and all that good stuff? You bet. So again, our primary audience is, again, you know, asset-based motor carriers, brokers, shippers, investors, folks have a vested interest in predicting with confidence the directional trajectory of U.S. spot and contract truckload rates. Our product is effectively a monthly publication, right? So every month, there's a 15 to 25 page publication around, you know, what's the market doing? What's the current state? Where are we in the curve? What do we think was going to happen this quarter? What is happening based on observation? And what does the future hold based on the implications of the cycle and all the different macro indicators that come into another conversation that build confidence around the supply and demand levers that are driving uh, that flow? Excellent. And that's for carriers, that's for shippers, that's for carriers, shippers, brokers, 3PLs, academics, interested citizens politicians, anybody, anybody, anybody with a credit card. <laughs> that, that's right. <laughs> well, what's your website and how do people reach out to you? Yeah, so you can find me, uh, you can go to picketresearch.com, P-I-C-K-E-T-T research.com. You can follow Picket Research LLC on LinkedIn. You can always send me a, a direct email at chris at 
picketresearch.com. And what I'll do, Chris, I'll put all those links into the show notes and I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile so people can connect with you there at your website. This is excellent. I appreciate you educating us, educating me, because I tell you, I understand some of this, but hearing it from an expert is very helpful. Yeah, I mean, it's something I remain passionate almost to a, a borderline <laughs> obsession in terms of just the, the, the dynamics in play, how complex this is, yet how consistent and kind of the underlying you know, beauty in many ways, you know, of these cycles. And again, the better you understand them, the better decisions you make for your organization. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You bet. Thanks, Joe. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logistics of logistics dot com.